Hello, Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement followers and our Choose Love podcast audience. My name is Scarlett Lewis, and I'm the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. And I am thrilled that you're here with us today to talk about healthy grieving with Diane Gray. Diane is on the board of directors and the official spokesperson for the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation. She is the founder of Hospice and Healthcare Communications, helping people live and love through end of life and grief. And I am honored to say also that Diane is a personal friend of mine and has been such an inspiration and such a huge help in getting me through my grieving process or helping me along because we're still both on that process. Diane, thank you so much for joining us today. Scarlett, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You have such an important message and can help so many people because in reality, you know, we think about grieving and we think about that as a significant loss usually in our mind, loss of a parent, loss of a child, loss of a pet, but actually we grieve many things and we do this a lot and it's actually a healthy process and not one that we should fear. And I think it's really important that we take the fear out of the grieving process. And then I think through this conversation, hopefully help people gain courage to be with those who are grieving, even themselves, which is really important. We met, uh, I don't know if you remember, at one of the Compassionate Friends conferences. I think it was in Illinois. Mm-hmm. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I will never forget sitting down with you for the first time and just feeling like I had met somebody on my wavelength because I think when you have significant loss, even traumatic loss, I know for a long time I felt like I was operating on a different plane than everyone else and even people in my own family. And it was just so beautiful to sit down and talk with someone who understood exactly where I was. And I really appreciated that. Diane, you have your own story, why you got into this line of work, which we've talked about how people go, wow, you're into death and dying and grief. Uh, I think I'm gonna go, talk to somebody else. (laughs) It's a buzzkill for if you're single. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Well, then why did you get into this? You have an incredible story. I do. But with that said, I didn't choose it. I kept turning away from it and saying, oh, I'm going to do this just for a little while until I do this other thing. You know, when we're young and we grow up, we think, oh, I'm going to have this life and this is what it's going to look like. And then the knock on the head comes and says, uh, no, I don't think so. So basically, I studied sports management and sports medicine in college, which a lot of that came with anatomy, phys, kines, you know, coursework in my university. And I studied neurology and loved it and didn't like a lot of other things, but ended up with a child with a rare neurological disorder seven years after I graduated from college. Mm. And that looked like I can't even explain it. We lived in a in Naples, Florida. It was a beautiful, quaint, at that time, smaller city, you know, beach town in Florida. And um, everything was idyllic, you know, 
gorgeous husband, marriage, uh, blonde-haired, green-eyed little boy who at age four was diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder. I mean, we had telltale signs along the way, but the gist of it is that at two turning three, he was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa the exact same day that my pregnancy with my daughter was at its 20th week. So not only was my son diagnosed with a genetic disorder, which meant he might go blind, my child that I was carrying, my now healthy daughter, might have it too. So then two years later, Austin was diagnosed with this rare one in a million genetic disorder, NBIA disorder, neurodegenerative brain iron accumulation. And basically what it does is there's iron in the brain and it deposits and the brain in a layman's terms looks like it rusts. So he stopped moving one arm and another arm when he was sick and then he stopped moving and then he stopped talking and swallowing and eating and all while he was cognitively intact. Meanwhile, my healthy daughter was, you know, growing up three and three quarters years behind him. So life was chaotic, marriage tanked. And uh, I was a single parent caregiver during much of that time. And um, Austin died when he was 14. The last five years we had hospice, which anybody that's on pediatric hospice will tell you, that doesn't mean you have nursing. It means that, you know, once a month they would come out to the house and check on our medications and recertify. But hit and miss, we would have nursing. So it was uh, chaotic to say the least. And then it also had tremendous beauty in it. We learn resiliency, you learn coping mechanisms, you learn to appreciate a million small little things and joys and mm-hmm. not sweat things. You know, you just learn what life really can be, what you think it should be. So that's kind of our story. So Austin died. We did remove nutrition and hydration with hospice's help, which makes it a little bit different. I mean, Scarlett, your loss was sudden. I had every day for the better part of 10 years to watch my son die one day at a time. Right. Um, So neither loss is good or better. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that in losing my dad when I was nine years old to sudden loss, one day to the next, one minute to the next, of a heart attack when he was 39. And then my son, you know, when I was 42 and he was 14, those two different types of losses taught me a lot about grief. So then I went on to study all kinds of research. And in college, I studied Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who also informed my end of life journey with my son, his journey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, but also this informed so much about grief and hope and you better live now because this is it, you know, type of philosophy. And then, yes, of course, I went on to become a keynote speaker and an author. And then along the way, I've done a lot of research because I have a personal philosophy that is echoed by many, that we are responsible for our choices. And that can include our grief journey as well. I love Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's quote, it's only when we truly know and understand that we have a limited time on earth and that we have no way of knowing when our time is up, that we will begin to live each day to the fullest as if it was the only one we had. So true. I learned that when I was nine, when my dad left. And I think that's one of the significant takeaways that anyone can learn from sudden loss 
is, if you didn't know it before, you sure do following sudden loss. And I think one of the things that I learned as well is that we're all just here to help one another. I mean, that's our reason for being. I know going back to what you said before, a lot of people try to comparison grieve with me. Like they'll come up to me and say, I went through a significant loss, but it's nothing like yours. And it's interesting because usually what I'm thinking when they're describing their loss is, oh my gosh, it is nothing like mine. Yours is much worse. <laughs> they're thinking in their mind, mine is much worse right and come to realize there is no comparison grief grief is grief there's no worse because it's about love yes so we can't say oh i love my you know my child more than my other child or my child more than my husband or someone else's wife or you know what i mean it's just you can't compare because we can't compare love it's just different and it's unique when you were studying with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she started out with the five stages of grief. And I know that they don't go in order because even now, six years later, I go back and forth between them. Can you kind of walk us through those? Elizabeth created the five stages of dying. She interviewed hundreds and hundreds of patients in the late 60s. And as she interviewed them, Elizabeth found that there were similarities that the various patients felt, but that not all people felt all stages at all times. They were not linear. Some people would go through all of the stages, none of the stages. They would not experience, and then they would circle back around years later. So what that looks like, the acronym is DABDA, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So in Elizabeth's opinion, when she was speaking with these hundreds of patients, she found that denial looks like, well, that's not happening to me. There's no way. And we see that a lot with first responders when they have to come to the house, right? And tell a family that this experience happened. And we know that they'll say, well, no, 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 no. Right. I that's can see that. Anger is exactly as it sounds go away and you know all of the angry feelings that go with that bargaining um i did that i did a lot of bargaining god if you'll take me instead of him i'll do this for you mm. or if you'll save him and spare him then i'll commit every day of my life to a philanthropic journey and yes you know whatever that sounds like people have done all kinds of things and understandably right they don't lose their loved one right Depression, I want to be careful here. Depression is, these days, a lot of people switch out the phrase depression with sadness. Sadness is not depression. Sadness is normal. Sadness is because we love. And of course, we're supposed to be sad because someone we love died. We grieve because we love. Mm -hmm. So sadness is not depression clinically. But clinically depressed is something different. In Elizabeth's case, she meant to feel depressed, to go through what resembles uh, clinical depression, what looks like true depression, or true, true gut-wrenching sorrow and sadness. Dying were created at a time, like I said, in the late 60s, where we didn't have so many fine lines in the explanation, but then depression goes on to acceptance. And what that looks like is, 
well, I guess I'm not going to get out of this one. I guess mm. I'm going to die. Or I guess that I have this disease and it's inevitable. All right. In Elizabeth's own case, she got to a point where she was begging to die for so long. She just wanted to leave this earth because she had endured several strokes. Mm. And, you know, she was just miserable and said, listen, I'm ready to go. I want to go. I want to go. Why can't I go? Is today the day? And then finally acceptance for Elizabeth was, well, I guess that this is my fate and my, my journey. And I kind of like it here, albeit in a wheelchair with neuropathy in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. not able to touch or be touched, which is ironic, right? Mm. So she died two weeks later. So acceptance to her was, well, I guess I'm not going to be able to snap my fingers and get out of here. Interesting. Maybe yeah, that's acceptance, right? Just realizing yeah. you're not in control. Exactly. <laughs> so those were the five stages. Someone else came along a while later and added two more stages and so those seven stages look like something else now even elizabeth's work if you open up the book on death and dying does have at the beginning of it shock also see at the end of it that hope on the page in the book goes along nearly all of the continuum and elizabeth's research showed that when the patient lost hope that they died Wow. In 100% of the cases, lost all hope for sure. That again is a bigger conversation because a lot of people say I'm totally without hope, but actually somewhere is still in their simmering. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. I think I spent a lot of time myself in shock after Jesse's murder, but while I was in shock, I remember just taking my time, you know, not needing, just taking care of myself. And my main concern was JT. I thought that was really helpful for me that I got to focus on, you know, being there and also modeling what resilience and strength and courage look like for him. I knew that I needed to do that because I was teaching him how to respond thoughtfully to something else that might happen in his life down the road. And that really helped me. But I think that was even still in the shock phase because I think I spent a lot of time there. Sometimes I go back to shock, even six years later. Of course, because many of us can't believe that we're living this life, never planned for this. Right. Well, I asked you to partner with us on a healthy grieving program really because of JT's experience in school. He went back to school and uh, actually he was in seventh grade when Jesse died. So he was in school from seventh to 12th grade Mm -hmm. and he's since graduated. But I remember having a shocking moment when we were being interviewed in our living room by 60 Minutes. And that's the television show. And one of the people on the show were asking him questions. And they said, when you went back to school, did anyone talk to you about the tragedy or your little brother? And he said, no. I mean, I had never asked him that question. Although I know that we struggled with his feeling like no one cared. 
Um, right. For years, he would come home and say, mom, no one cares about me. And I would say, oh my gosh, JT, are you kidding me? Because I'm on the phone with your teachers, your counselor, you know, this and that. And, you know, they're creating meetings and I know that they care, but mm -hmm. they could never communicate that to JT. And I remember being on the phone with you and I'm just like pulling my hair out going, Diane, JT thinks no one cares about him and I'm at a loss. And you said, oh, that's simple. And I was like, oh, how can that be simple when we've struggled with this for years? And you said, no one has had the courage to validate his grief. And that to me was mind blowing. And I realized that that was the truth. And I recalled some conversations that I had with them and there's so much fear. It wasn't done out of trying to be mean, obviously, or anything. <laughs> like there's just so much fear around being with someone who's been through something traumatized, who's experienced a, a huge loss. And the fear is sometimes as simple as, well, I don't want to remind him. All these things were said to us. Well, what if I asked him how he was doing and I didn't have the skills and tools to help him if he said he wasn't doing okay? And you know, my response would be like, oh, he'll never say he's not okay. He's always going to stay fine. In our society, how you doing is a rhetorical question, right? Like you don't right. even really expect a response. But if you ask it twice, how are you doing? I'm fine. No, really, how are you doing? Then that indicates, look, I have the courage to be with you. If you feel like sharing, if you want to say you're not okay, if you want to mm -hmm. say, yeah, I'm still okay, um, at least you know that I was willing and had the courage to be with you if you said you weren't and that I care. So JT went through the rest of his schooling without thinking anybody cared. And I realized it was kind of this lack of courage and understanding of grief and fear. So I asked you to help get information out there, which we're going to be doing with a healthy grieving program, just to help people understand more the grieving process, to take the fear away. It's a natural part of life. We all go through it. And just to give some simple, really practical tips and skills to go through it for yourself and for those around you. Exactly. Here's why we want to do something like this and why teachers, neighbors, family members, friends want to just tune in and learn what they can. Much to our dismay, there's never going to be one place for all people for grief resources. There just isn't because we are all so different. So what I can add to the mix is use it as a basic primer. The mm -hmm. programming that we're doing, Scarlett, is not meant to replace years of psychotherapy or treatment or anything like that. This is really meant to be a way for neighbors to reach out to neighbors, mm -hmm. for teachers to reach out to kids, for friends to reach out to friends. Mm -hmm. That's it. Why? Because it's not happening. First of all, let's look at the trauma in our country right now. The mm -hmm. number of school shootings, tragedies, public tragedies, natural disasters, etc. There simply are not enough grief counselors in the country to help all of the people that are grieving. And the grieving people cannot all afford to spend $125 to $225 an hour to go get qualified grief help. Mm -hmm. They can't afford it mm -hmm. or they don't have insurance that will pay for it 
or they feel stigmatized and they don't seek out help. So our program is basically wired to say, look, here's a hammock of support. If you need more support, definitely find more support. We're all in favor of that. But in the meantime, here's a layer of understanding that will help you to have preliminary conversations that are rooted in love and compassion and empathy with the children and adults in your world that are grieving. We've got to do it. We have to step forward into the space, not away from. Connection is so important. I say, you know, the whole premise of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement is that love is connection and belonging. And it's something that we're all the same in as human beings. And it doesn't matter how old we are, what part of the country we're from, what language we speak, what color our skin, any perceived difference at all. We're all the exact same in the want and need to love and be loved. And when you have some skills and tools, it becomes a choice. But then when you add grief onto that, it becomes complicated. And hopefully the program will give people this understanding that will give them the courage to connect with others. Because, you know, when you're in that grieving space, it's hard to reach out to others and you need people. You know, we just had a terrible tragedy here in Newtown where one of the victim's parents committed suicide. Yeah. So after you go through a traumatic loss, you know, everything in your life that happens subsequently becomes more complicated. And, you know, you've got everyone around you probably, and I'm thinking about Newtown, having a little bit of empathy burnout, (laughs) right? I mean, they've they felt our pain for a long time and probably the feeling like, oh my God, we have to get back to our own lives, our own families. And, you know, how long can this go on? But for the victims' families themselves, you're still going through it. And it's interesting how your friendships change. Some people fall away, some friendships strengthen, and you really appreciate those. And relationships change with family members. And it's really, really an interesting process. And it's that connection that is so vitally important. And what I'm really hoping that we help with, with our program. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, and I think it's especially important with children because we know that as their hearts and minds grow and adapt, we don't want them to fall out of the loop. And the first way to do that is to be present, fully present with them Mm. without this whole checking cell phone thing every five seconds that adults do. By Mm -hmm. the way, I want to be really clear on this. I know just as many adults as children that have this uh, love affair with their phone. So we know that being present with children makes a difference. And hopefully our program will help the adults and the young adults as well to be fully present with kids that are enduring grief and loss. It's so easy to get lost in your phone. And I have to admit, I'm one of those people, I don't know, it's almost like a drug, (laughs) right? Right. And it takes you kind of out of your life for a little bit and you're going into this vacuous space that's really not that productive it is so vitally important to be present with your kids and when you're doing that you're helping them but you're also helping yourself 
I think about how JT, who was 12 years old when his little brother was murdered, how he really suffered initially and was very angry, understandably. It actually took, believe it or not, orphan genocide survivors to reach out to him from Rwanda via a live Skype with an interpreter. And this was weeks after the tragedy and telling him, hey, JT, we heard about your little brother's murder all the way over here in Rwanda. He wanted you to know that you're going to be okay and you're going to feel joy again. I'm standing behind him in his bedroom thinking, oh my gosh, out of everybody that we've talked to thus far, these people have the most credibility of all of them. Um, if you're familiar with the Rwandan genocide in 1994, there was a government ordered genocide in Rwanda where over 1 million Tutsis were murdered by their neighboring Hutus within 100 days. And these kids were orphans from that genocide. So they had watched their families be murdered in front of them, attempted murder on them. And they started telling JT how they got through it. And they said, you know, we made our way into an orphanage and it was when our physical wounds started healing that we started feeling this profound sense of gratitude, you know, that we were alive, that we were safe, that we were getting food and compassion. And they said that actually strengthened them to consider forgiveness for the killers or they might go down the same path of anger and destruction that they had gone down. And then the act of forgiveness, the choice to forgive, enabled them to find the strength to start sharing their story and find meaning in their suffering, like they were doing with JT. And literally, JT turned around the next day. I'll never forget the words that he said to me. He said, those kids reached out to me in love, and I'm going to reach back out to them. I'm going to start raising money for them to go to university. And so he went back to school the next day. He had these bands made that said NewtownHelpsRwanda.org and then started selling them. He had sold enough to send one of the orphan genocide survivors to university for a year. He Skyped back to them and was able to tell this woman and she fell to the ground just in tears. And he turned to me and said, is she okay? And I said, JT, you know, a little bit of effort on your behalf completely changed somebody's life on the other side of the world. Science tells us that when we do for others, it's so healing for us. And so he's continued this for six years. And the purpose of telling you this story is just the power of stepping outside of your own pain and doing something for other people, because I'm watching that realizing if there was a ready made pharmaceutical, I probably would have given it to JT because it's so hard as a parent to watch your child grieving and mourning and being angry and not really knowing what to do about it. But his getting outside of himself and doing for other people is more powerful than any pharmaceutical he could have taken. It's so healing. And you know, that's what I'm doing <laughs> in the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. Exactly. And I think it's important to mention that the overall phrase is advocacy. So through advocacy, yes, it does help people heal their grief because they feel like they are doing something in a proactive way, whether one is into the whole using the universe language. So mm -hmm. we know about karma, we know about universal energy, giving love energetically. It's just, it's amazing, but also from a spiritual sense or a 
a religious sense. There's a lot of information out there that talks about the power of giving back and why we should out of grace and love mm-hmm. compassion. But I think healing grief through advocacy is also important in a way that it is the smallest act of kindness. Mm-hmm. It's teaching children who are grieving to let's bake cookies for someone else. Let's open the door for that elderly person that can't navigate their wheelchair and the door. Mm. It's the smallest act. That too is advocacy via acts of kindness. And I think it's important to mention not everyone has it in their wheelhouse to start a foundation or, you know, in my case, I did Austin's Kitchen Garden through Shura Orphanage. We turned into a multi-acre plot growing numerous organic vegetables at an orphanage that feeds 47 children. Um, the 10th anniversary of Austin's death. I wanted to do something to honor his life. And my friends were lovely. And they said, hey, let's have like a party or get together. I was like, ah, it doesn't feel right. But I took all of the elements that were Austin, meaning he loved Africa. He loved gardening. He loved nature. Uh, It was something that we did. He had a soft spot for children who were, quote, left behind. That's Mm. his phrase. Were all orphaned because their parents all died of AIDS, a disease that they did not cause right mm-hmm. nor austin did not cause his disease so it was like a perfect fit um, and advocacy can look like all kinds of things legislation and policy which we know people that do that can creative programming education scholarships acts of kindness all kinds of things but it is a very powerful tool for helping to heal grief absolutely I remember getting so many letters following Jesse's murder, and uh, one of them in particular stands out to me. Uh, It was a man who had lost a young son. He was five years old and watched him suffer through illness for years. And he said that he continued to ask himself the question, why? Why me? Why not someone else? Why my son? Why did it have to happen like this? Why this illness and all of these whys? And then at the very end of his letter, he wrote, perhaps now I know the reason why. Perhaps it was because I could now write you a letter and tell you not to waste your time asking why, but rather, why not? Why not me? You know, why? why not me? And then just move forward from there. And I read that letter very early on. I used to carry it around with me in my computer bag to remind me it was so powerful. And I think that has something to do with acceptance. And that's true. You know, this is our life and we can't always control what happens in our lives, but we get our power back by thoughtfully responding with love, kindness, caring, concern, compassion, which is what we've been talking about. And when we do that in any situation, circumstance or interaction, we take our personal power back and make the world a better place. And I think that's really important to remember. I thought maybe we could talk about some strategies and tips for healthy grieving. Our program spans the lifespan, really. And uh, so just talking about just a few things that people can keep in mind from an expert about how to healthfully grieve. 
sure. Well, I think, first of all, I can tell you and everybody that's listening, quite honestly, that in part, I know that grieving well is about choice. And it's not because I've made them all correctly by any sense of the imagination. I have gone through periods where I didn't exercise, where I didn't eat right, where, you know, I would have a glass of wine, which would turn into two. Mm. And thankfully, I didn't have the tendency to go and eat five plates of lasagna or turn to any one modality for healing or working through my grief. But I did learn early on that it's about choice. And I think choice is the most powerful tool that we have. And I think that I'm not sure in this country if we really talk about choice as much as we could. So to me, grieving in a healthy way looks like setting up a roadmap. What are our choices? Wow, that's profound. I completely agree with you and putting components in place that enable us to get to the point, I guess, where we can make those choices. You know, it's interesting in my journey, you know, we were, I would say, tragically blessed uh, in Sandy Hook, where so many people from all over the world came and brought their healing modalities to our town. So to us and Mm. literally like set up tents got abandoned buildings donated to them for a certain time and put out beds and literally we were driven around in our state trooper cars to these different places and you know it was basically your choice if you would accept the offers of these different healing modalities and some of them were things that I'd never heard of And of course, my attitude is, wow, at least try it. You're in so much pain, really physically, mentally, and emotionally, your whole body's on fire. Why not try anything that's offered? Because uh, it probably won't hurt and it might be able to help. And so literally I was in every tent (laughs) trying everything. And, uh, And I will tell you, there are a few that stuck that I still do to this day. But I noticed also that I would tell other people, try um, one of the things that I thought was incredibly effective and I do to this day is tapping, emotional freedom technique. Right. And I would say, you guys have to try this tapping stuff. This is amazing. Like I got relief. And a lot of times the response would be, eh, yeah, I don't know. I've never heard of it. What is it again? And what if it doesn't work for me? And so I realized, bottom line, that there was a lot of fear involved, too, with trying new things, especially probably when you're going through uh, grief. But having really an open mind and being willing to listen and to try new things is important. Tapping was one of the best things that I did, as was uh, brain spotting. Yes. And uh, brain spotting was developed by Dr. David Grand. And he actually came himself into Newtown. He still comes. And brain spotting is EMDR, which is following something with your eyes. And then that's done for trauma. But then he noticed that there was a space where your eyeball would flicker. And that would be the spot in your brain where your trauma resided. And when you identified that spot, you could talk through it. And then the other healthy parts of your brain 
could make up for that and start healing it. And that was incredible. And I still do that. And then also MNRI, which is also known as the Muscatova method, which works with the neurosensory reflexes in your body. And basically you're just lying on a table and they're working on just gentle reflexes on your body that are sending signals to your brain that you're safe. What are some things, Diane, that helped you? Prayer meditation. For yeah. Me, meditation is different than prayer. Mm -hmm. I listen during meditation and I don't talk. And during prayer, I talk and I listen, but I open up my heart. That to me is a component of the formula. Uh, I exercise, I try to eat well, I cook healthy food. I do think that there's something to be said for that. Look at it this way, without grief. Any given day, if you eat donuts, you're not gonna feel good. Well, you might temporarily. <laughs> well, you donut lovers out there. I know I have been prone to that. But you're looking at doing the best and being the best that you can be. And you want your emotions to feel stable. People tell me all the time, Diane, you know, I lost so-and-so and my emotions are all over the place. I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. Mm. And then you look at their diet and you're like, well, first of all, what are you assigning to grief? And let's look at your diet. Well, you're eating sugar three times during the day. Of course, you're up and down anyway. Mm -hmm. So it really boils down to, do you want to feel better? And for some people, the answer really truly is, no, I don't. I'm mad as hell. I don't want to do this. I'm angry and I just want to feel bad. And that's okay. Have that day. If you're going to feel bad, I might go on in there eat your three donuts and get out, you know, mm. and then pick yourself back up the next day or later that afternoon or have a big old whale fest, cry, right? Mm -hmm. Ball, but then stand back up. I was explaining this to someone. If you use the pool analogy, if I pull someone down to the bottom of the pool, which is the metaphor for grief, right? People feel like their grief is just going to pull them down to the bottom of the pool and drown. Mm -hmm. I have news for them. These lungs and this brain and your heart are going to run by themselves. They are going to tell the body, oh my gosh, I am running out of oxygen. And you're going to put your feet down and push yourself up to the surface. We are wired to survive. So if you're going to survive anyway, folks, let's make some decisions. You don't have to do them all in one day. Try what works for you. You tried tapping. Awesome. You tried a few other things. Great. But keep trying. Find the ones that work for you. I love that. I think sometimes you feel like, you know, if you feel bad, then yeah. that's a connection to your loved one. And then if you're going to start overcoming feeling bad and feeling good, then you're going to lose that connection. But I learned pretty quickly that that's not the case. That connection remains and you can even enjoy what I say, kind of a new relationship with the one that you lost. It's not the physical body relationship, which is of course the one that you want and the one that you'll miss forever. But it, for me, I've tried to kind of have a new relationship with Jesse where I talk to him, I ask him for help. I believe that he does help me. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't have done this by myself. 
and he still is with me all the time, enjoying things and uh, with me when I'm down because I definitely still have down times. I, I still cry every day, but you're right. And I love that pool analogy because I can cry and, and be really down, but then I do, I come right back up and I, it's almost like you brush the dust off and you keep moving forward. Which is resiliency, right? And yes. Resiliency is an exercise that we need to do every day. We need to practice it and build our resiliency skills. The more we exercise it, the more we'll get used to relying and depending upon those tools that we have. And it's just like anything else. If you don't practice it, you forget that it's there. And I think it's really important that we all understand that there is a scientific concept that the majority of us have experienced, yet no one's heard of it because of our innate negative bias, which makes us focus on the negative, but it's called post-traumatic growth. And that's when we grow through difficulty. I mean, when you think about how you're shaped and molded as a human being, it is literally through roadblocks, challenges, pain, suffering, loss. That is what helps shape and mold you, your thoughtful response in that process. And the growth that you can have, even in the face of such a traumatic loss as the shooting death of a child. I mean, I can tell you that because I've experienced it over the past six years. It's, it's really actually remarkable and incredible. I'm a completely different person than the one that I was six years ago because of the loss, but also because of the tremendous growth that I've been able to achieve with having really an open heart and an open mind. I mean, I think ultimately what happened after Jesse's murder was I lost a lot of the fear that I had been operating under and realizing that I had lived a lot of my life and made a lot of my choices based in fear. And then all of a sudden your greatest fear happens. And that's, you know, you send your kid to school and they get gunned down. And then you have this situation where you're like, oh my God, my greatest fear in my entire life has happened. So what else is there to fear? And, and all of a sudden it just falls away and it opens up a whole new world that you can live without fear or with much less fear. And it looks completely different. It can be an amazing experience along with, of course, the loss. Oh, for sure. I think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said that there are basically two emotions that are at work every day in every action, and it's love or fear. Mm. Two, that's it. All actions are either love or fear. So if that's true, which I believe it's true, then where do we operate from? And love is very different following loss, right? We know that love looks a lot different. I can love you, but I can never own you. I can't own Austin's soul, my son that died. I didn't own his soul. I created his body. So I think that, you know, where am I going to come from? And on most days, hopefully it's love. And uh, when I do get that feeling that I'm having a fear-based reaction, I try at this point to analyze why that is and then use the tools in my toolkit you know, from grieving well or 
uh, resiliency to do a course correction. I love that. And that takes us all the way back around. And I wrote this down with quotes around it. Grieving well is by choice. Choice is the most powerful tool we have. And I think that's a beautiful way to wrap this up because we are all about choosing love as a thoughtful response. And this is going to give so many people so many more tools and skills to pull from to be able to make that choice. So thank you so much, Diane. I love you so much. And I'm so grateful for you every single day. The help that you've given in my journey and the help that you're going to give so many other people in our Healthy Grieving Program. It's just awesome and amazing and so needed. And thank you. Thanks, Scarlett. I love you to pieces. You're doing great work. It's all part of us. We can all choose love in a